Hello, and welcome to Legally Consumed, a consumer products podcast by a consumer products law firm in Australia. I'm Raf Goldenberg, and I'm joined by co-hosts Kay Ho and Will McMinn, who are members of the team at CIU Legal. We chat with executives of consumer products companies, their legal teams, and industry experts who give us a peek into their journeys as people. We explore industry-changing ideas and even share tips and tricks on how to navigate the consumer product space. This season, we will feature guests from the automotive, retail, advertising and insights, food, beverage and primary production and franchising sectors. Welcome to another episode of the Legally Consumed podcast. Today, we're joined by Samantha Johnson and Kay Ho, my co-host. Samantha is the Managing Director of Polestar Automotive Australia, and Polestar is a new player in the Australian automotive market and sells electric cars only. It's a very cool company. I'll let Samantha talk a little bit more about it. But firstly, I really just want to say thank you for Samantha for joining us. We did have a go and recorded a podcast, I think, in Sydney probably a month or two ago. And afterwards, we had some technical issues. So Samantha's been very kind to come back and to join us. So welcome, Samantha. Oh, Raf, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. Thank you for coming. Um, we'll talk a lot about Polestar and what makes it different soon, but it'd be good just to start off um, hearing about your personal journey and, you know, um, things you've done along the way before you got here. And I'll start with a question about your first job. What was your first ever job? My first job was in the mailroom of uh, Ernst & Young, which is actually um, Ernst & Winnie back then, and then it merged with Arthur Young. And uh, so I started in the mailroom and uh, my boss didn't like doing all the accounting work, so all the accounts. So I started helping her with that. And then a position came up in the accounts team and then I moved up and then I, I did my studies and uh, I just sort of worked my way into a, a great family company um, that I worked with for six years and started um, as a sort of junior credit controller, worked my way up to the, be their financial controller. And uh, just uh, we, we went from a small business with one, uh, one uh, office to you know, a national business um, looking after all big ASX firms. Um, so it was um, yeah, very exciting. I learned a lot. When you start with a small company, you learn every part of it, which is a really good foundation for then, you know, when you go into a big company, you understand how everything runs. Yeah. Sounds sound. So you were studying at uni whilst you were doing this? Yes. Yes, I was. Yeah, studying oh, at one wow. uni here, down here in Melbourne. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, really exciting times. And um, yeah, so it was uh, very difficult when it came to like, you know, um, end of financial year, you'd be putting board reports together. Uh, you'd be doing exams and assignments and everything all at the same time. So it was a pretty busy time. Pretty full on. Yeah. And I know that um, you spent some time overseas, didn't you? And um, you had some interesting adventures before you kind of ended up back in Australia. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, about those? Yeah, well, my mum my was living over in Hong Kong, um, working in some of the international schools. So uh, when I finished my, my studies and um, I went over there and worked for a couple of uh, really interesting companies there. One was a, um, a promotional premiums company. So they make your, you know, McDonald's um, Happy Meal um, little um, 
you know, toys and little toys and yeah. perhaps and indeed your your Coca-Cola <laughs> umbrellas and bottles and, and anything to do with like merchandising and other yeah. promotional premiums. They did that, which was really really interesting. They won the FIFA World Cup um, many many years ago, so um, they restructured the company to handle that World Cup that was coming along in four years' time. So um, that was really interesting going through yeah. that sort of turnaround. Uh, I worked in another company there um, that was um, manufactured all the big posters that you see around Hong Kong and Japan, you know, Louis Vuitton, um, Gucci, all the fashion posters. So mm -hmm. we were like the market leader in that um, product. And then they um, they took over a Japanese um, company and started up over there. And uh, um, it was a, it was a, originally a local Hong Kong company, got sold to a UK multinational. So um, they had all this expansion. So I got sent over to Japan for, for three months to put in this system erp system that i'd never heard of before uh i had never really worked with manufacturing directly with system you know implementing new systems before so um and only two people spoke english which were the um the systems consultants so it was very interesting um but we did it i had my little palm pilot at the time yeah. one ago it was <laughs> and uh we just every day from like 5 a.m to like 11 o'clock at night just powered through all of these things that had to be done and you know what it was just um it had to be done and we got there um and uh, yeah, it was funny going coming to the go live meeting at the end because um, no one says anything because I don't the boss is there. So yeah, right. It was uh, you know uh, do you all, yeah you all uh, happy to go live? You're all ready. Everything else pure silence. <laughs> so anyway, so it was very interesting, but uh, learned a lot. It was a great experience being in Hong Kong and in Japan. And um, but then it got to the stage where um, my husband and I said, oh, it's, you know, it's time to to head back to Australia. So we um, we'd been living on a boat for a, a yacht for a couple of years. And doing a lot of racing in Hong Kong, so we um, decided to sail our boat back to back to Australia. Oh wow! Amazing. So, so tell us a little a little bit about um, that trip. Oh look, um, I love planning for it. I spent three months literally. Um, we had my husband who was experienced. Um, also had my um, my uh, best friend's um, boyfriend who was a yacht master. So he loved sticking his head into diesel mechanics. As he was an engineer, so. He could sail really well. He'd been out in like horrendous conditions and he knew his way around engines. So um, so he helped me with all the like safety planning, um, the equipment and everything, getting us prepared. Um, we had to have all the food planned out, the fuel, the water, where we're going to stop. It had to be warm the whole way everywhere and uh, no cyclones, typhoons or anything like that. So we had to time where, where we went and when. And, uh, and just making sure that you had the spares for the mechanics if things went wrong. Yeah. Because we, yeah, oh, nowhere, yeah. and just drop in and call for, and that, and that for, that did happen. So, um, yeah, so we went through the Philippines, uh, spent a month there with our friends and and family, and and just people coming on and off. And there's a lot of diving, and there were some great experiences there. And uh, then we went to Papua New Guinea for a month, um, spent time around there, and then we we came into to Cairns and spent a month in Cairns and a month in the Sundays. Um, but when we were, when we were coming out of the Philippines, there's this uh, strait of water called um, Surigao Strait, and it could run at eight knots, which is about the maximum that our boat could go with the motor on. Uh, so we were told, we, and we we had the the tide, um, the local tides printed out and told us when the the slack tide was. It's a good time to to head through. Uh, but then there was a like a, a small cruise boat in at the harbour. So we asked uh, the captain there, we said, you know, can you just verify? And he said, no, 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 it's totally different. Look, well, oh, how do we do? Do I trust him or do we trust the written? <laughs> so we trusted the written. We just went for the written. <laughs> okay. 
because um, that is, you know, explicit and from a marine authority. And uh, we went through and this, this strait literally has um, whirlpools and eddies. And, and when I say whirlpools, that was the size of the boat, which is 40 foot. But you would, it was just a mess of a round circle of water and you would go onto it and you just have no steering. You just have to sort of come out the other end. Um, and our, um, our Morse cable went, which is the, the gear cable. So we couldn't get the boat into gear going down this straight. So I was heading in one direction and we were going sideways um, to, in another direction. Oh. So I had to steer in a totally different direction to, to where we were going, where the, the current was taking us. Um, I had to sail while um, to get us to where we needed to go while my husband and this other fellow, one underneath and one up top, getting this, this metal, this Morse cable, gear cable, um, from down in the engine up to the, um, the gear lever up the top in the cockpit and uh, testing it and making sure it all works. So I was just sailing while this was all going on. And um, so that was sort of one one adventure. That was a farm. We sped out the other end and we were all like, hey. Um, but there were lots of things that, that happened in different places. We, we had the, between Papua New Guinea and Cairns, the steering went, uh, one of the bolts, something came loose. Um, so we had to put a, instead of the big round um, yeah. steering wheel, um, which has a lot of different sort of, um, what would you call it? Um, levers so that it's you don't have yep. to use much weight we had to use an emergency tiller which is this big big stick yeah. which is like a, a you know trying to move an elephant yeah. and uh, so we had to put that i had to do that and steer the boat while again the, the guys were going up up and down trying to get the steering fixed so right. but we had spares for everything we had tested wow. the steering out before we left we it was just about making sure you had your risk covered yeah and uh we, we did that um and we're, we're okay, but yeah, and there's lots of other adventures oh, that happen. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So yeah. how long was it from Hong Kong and was it Sydney, Sydney Harbour yourself? Yeah, nine, nine months. Nine you months. could do it in six weeks if you wanted to, but we spent right. nine months. Uh, when we left Cairns, we just literally hopped down the coast, spent a month in the Sundays, and uh, met a best friend on the way um, in her boat. So oh, cool. that's been really good. Um, and then, um, yeah, we came down into, into Sydney, into... Um, uh, Homebush Marina, I think it is yeah. in in uh, yeah. Pitwater, and uh, we finally got a got a home into it, and we lived there for a little while before we um, got jobs and uh, became responsible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And talking about responsible, so from there, how did you kind of find your way into Polestar? Yeah, well, I ended up um, I got a job with um, Harley Davidson, uh -huh. and I remember I remember being offered the role and thinking, you know, what what, what does that mean, Harley Davidson? Is it sort of an old-fashioned traditional company or is it something more exciting and they're actually doing some really innovative things and it was a real opportunity to join something where um you're part of the the new growth yeah. and uh so and so it was um literally four of us as a startup in australia in a shared office in linfield in sydney um because the um the distributorship was held with three large dealer groups so what we did is we took over as the manufacturer's yeah. distributor and uh, there was quite a period to go through there and literally built it up to be, you know, maybe 40, 50 people, uh, 50 dealership network, Australia and New Zealand. Um, it was quite substantial and we just grew, we set up um, ERP systems uh, and then moved, moved offices a couple of times to um, sort of a bespoke office. And uh, yeah, a lot of different experiences, but I was always really interested in what happened on the, the dealership side and the profitability was something I've, you know, always interested in working with. And uh, so it was an opportunity that came up um, in the sales team and looking after the um, the, uh, the dealership network 
and also looking after sales. Um, so I took that on for a couple of years, which was great because um, they, they wanted me to bring structure to that team. Mm -hmm. So it was about how we could best get everyone working together within the team and also with the other teams more collaboratively and, uh, and getting them to go out and be really constructive around, right, here's your dealer dashboard. These are the KPIs. Uh, where is a um, dealership sitting? These are the opportunities where you can improve. Let us help you in how you can do that. It might be a, you know digital marketing. How can we have a better customer journey? Um, how can we connect with our customers a bit more on social media rather than just posting? Actually, you know, interact. Yeah, and a lot of other things. So we put in place a lot of really good things. Uh, we grew really well during that time. Um, it was very very interesting. Uh, got some great experience. Um, and then, you know, I went for, when I left there, um, I, I got a role with, um, Volvo. Yep. So, um, again, as a, well, I went in as a business controller there. Um, and then, um, you know, they didn't have a finance at retail finance and insurance, which I'd always worked with at, at Harley. And, uh, so I said, look, we really need to set up a team here. So we started that and we, we built up the, you know, finance partner and GFE product and, and the online whole online journey. Cause that, that wasn't there at that time and uh, um, took on uh, digital transformation as well because we were starting that journey. And uh, so I hired the, the fellow who came in and sort of, you know, worked with that project and um, helped to get that off the ground to, to start on yeah. that project. So, um, yeah, and uh, my managing director at the time at Volvo was the ex-CEO of Polestar in right. Sweden. So um, we, we started working with, uh, Paul Stunner and, and that's where, um, that opportunity came up for me to move across and I'd had broad experience in all different areas. And I, I really, was really, really interested in that, um, that online space, doing things different, more the digital marketing side of, of, um, you know, and working with EVs as well, more sustainable. Um, you know, it was just a, a, a very, uh, enticing invitation. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about the history of the Polestar brand? Yeah, so it started as a as a, a racing brand, and uh, um, oh. then Volvo um, um, had a they had a partnership with Volvo, and then Volvo um, bought Polestar and made it part of its uh, a product product range. So you would buy a um, maybe a, a V60 or, a, or an S60 Volvo, and you could have um, Polestar engineered. So um, it would come out of the factory with, you know, pipes and um, accessories and uh, software and other things to make it a little bit more hotted up than the, the traditional cars. So we had that for a while and there still is sort of Polestar engineered like software um, or Polestar software. Uh, but um, Volvo no longer makes the, the Polestar engineered cars. So it's just, just Volvo. Uh, but what they, they found is they were making this car and uh, the, the design team, and they realized this is not really a, a Volvo. It's something more exciting. It's something different. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they decided to, um, you know, take Polestar out of Volvo and make it into a separate brand altogether. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they did that. And, uh, yeah, and they've um, it's been growing ever since. So, so you have, um, uh, so it's owned by um, Geely and Volvo, uh, Volvo Car Group. And then you had the you had the two different brands, Volvo Car and Polestar Cars, um, very very separate brands. Mm -hmm. So um, Polestar stands for um, very much the the design, innovation, and sustainability are our core sub pillars. Um, sustainability being absolutely uh, number one in everything that we do when we design a car has to be um, sustainable, and the innovation helps us with you know innovation, safety, um, connected car, and sustainability. Mm. And how does Polestar Australia fit into that? Like, how big are the 
the operations here? What does Polestar do? Well, Pulse, um, here we, we started live um, in February this year, um, set live with sales. And uh, it's been very exciting. We had a really good um, sort of backlog of, of customers who were just really keen to, to get started in a Polestar. And uh, we went through um, quite a lot of interesting time going live and, and uh, getting things right because you have everything tested and planned out, mm-hmm. but nothing ever goes exactly to plan. So we had a bit of learning and we had to work with partners and work with uh, Global on um, improving and escalating different areas. So we, we did all of that. Uh, but now we've got, um, at the end of last month, we had uh, 1,200 cars on the on the road, uh, which is wow. pretty, we're pretty uh, impressed with that. Yeah. Because, since Ben? Uh, wow. Since February, yes. Yeah. So, you know, the, the logistics, everything to be able to, and the retail locations to be able to um, deliver that with a high quality as well. Um, you know, and we still are learning. There still are things that sometimes, you know, you've, you've got to still improve on. Um, but I think there are some very happy customers out there. Um, I think we've gotten to a very good stage now and uh, opening up Chadston is kind of, you know, we, we've done really well to get to where we are now. This is now the next level because mm-hmm. um, we are moving from, you know, the Polestar 2 in a year's time, we're going to have the Polestar 3 large SUV and then Polestar 4 midsize SUV and uh, SUV and um, more products after that. Mm-hmm. So we need to sort of now move up to that next level and Chadston's really going to show that level of luxury is really shifting up. And uh, we're going to be expanding our, our retail um, network into sort of more luxury locations. Yeah, wow. I mean, you launched a, a new automotive business from scratch in less than a year. Could you tell us a bit more about the process and the challenges you faced? Absolutely. Well, it's been it's actually been about two years. So one we've, uh, from start of sales has all been um, this year. And there's been a lot that we've done this year. Uh, but last year, I, I literally started um, on my own at home because it was COVID and uh, uh, working with the uh, headquarter teams on, um, they've got really um, very well um, qualified and um, experienced teams in every single area. So you think of, you know, um, logistics, uh, after sales, marketing, e-commerce, uh, finance, um, every, you know, and a lot more, you know, PR, there's all these different departments. And uh, I just, you know, met with them every week going through steps in the project and what need to be done. Uh, brought the team on board, the leadership team on board, and then they brought their teams on board. And uh, we had um, events, PR events that we had to to launch with media um, during COVID. So our, we couldn't do the big events, big sustainability events we wanted to do. So we had to individually, you know, send a car to a, um, a reporter's location and uh, with, you know, the experience that went with that and do it all individually rather than what we would usually do, getting everyone together and taking them somewhere. So you had to had to really adapt and mm. uh, just do things differently and make things work. Um, but it's amazing on what you can do and what you can achieve when you are in a situation, you just you just adapt. I mean, it sounds, sounds great. And, and, and the car's great. Like I um, had a test drive of the Polestar 2 a while ago with my wife and um, it was just an incredible experience, sort of this the one pedal driving in particular, just kind of getting used to the fact that there's just one pedal to brake and accelerate, but just, um, and the, the, the power and the performance was just amazing. Um, so as a car, it feels fantastic. Can you tell us a bit, you're talking about sustainability before, um, and for you guys, that's obviously one of your pillars, but can you talk a little bit about how that manifests itself sort of through the life cycle of, of the car? Yeah, so um, Star has four drivers of sustainability. It's um, climate neutrality, 
transparency, circularity, and inclusion. So within that, uh, so the climate neutrality, we're talking about having a, a climate neutral vehicle by 2030, halving our emissions, um, the company overall by 2030, and then by 2040, having um, a climate neutral company in everything that we do um, and every car that comes off the production line. So that's sort of the, the carbon uh, neutrality um, sort of uh, uh, drivers. Uh, but then you've got the transparency, which is about having a life cycle assessment report, which we publish and provide the methodology to everyone in the industry that shows us where the Polestar 2 is now compared to a, an equivalent petrol engine. And if you're just using uh, you know, energy off the grid, it's, uh, it's less emissions, sizably less emissions than a, an equivalent petrol engine uh, or petrol car. Um, if you're using renewable energy, it's less than half of the emissions. So you buy a Polestar 2 like right now, it's less than half the emissions and it's going down each year because we're making it more sustainable um, than a, than a um, petrol engine. Petrol engine. So it's um, definitely worthwhile. But we look at that and we say, okay, well, that's uh, we're being very transparent about where we are now, but we're saying, you know, being um, electrification is only the beginning. We have to do more and get that, um, you know, the emissions that are remaining down to zero. So that's where we use that um, to, to guide us on, on where we go. Uh, we use blockchain technology to source um, risk minerals like cobalt. Uh, we've got might use it to um, source mica and also um, leathers. So leather is a, an option in our cars, um, but um, uh, the leather is a byproduct of meat and also there's no animal cruelty and that's all certified. So that's where we use blockchain technology where we can wow. to really, you know, um, make sure that we are, we're doing all the right things there. Um, circularity, which is another driver of our sustainability, is about um, making your cars last as long as possible. So using more highly durable products that last longer, but still having over the air software updates so your cars can still improve on range and um, stay relevant. Uh, you've got, um, you know, making your um, the car to be able to be um, repurposed as much as possible, all the components. So uh, let's say it ends up in a dismantling yard. Uh, all the the car, the components that pass a quality test can go back through the new car manufacturing process without a new carbon footprint. And so, so um, yeah, so it's about being able to um, re reuse those parts or repurpose those parts. And those that um, don't pass the test can go into parts uh, workshops. Uh, you're looking at batteries and making sure that they can be repurposed as much as possible. They might not, um, after the end of life of the car, they might not be able to be used for the car anymore, but they can be a, um, a, a battery for maybe a home um, for, or, or a solar powered um, charging station or broken apart and used as to um, electronic goods or something else. So, so there's a lot being built into it. So it's about sort of, you know, lasting longevity, um, serviceability, easily to get to more easily able to get to all the different components and adjust and detach and um, repurposing, recycling. Uh, we use um, a lot of um, natural products in our cars. So in the cars now, but in the future cars will be even more so like flax being used in natural products instead of, you know, hard plastics on the insides, um, recycled PET bottles, uh, recycled fishing nets, um, cork. Um, our aluminium is labeled so it can be recycled more easily at the end. Um, so what else do we have? What do you make out of the recycled, like what part of the car comes out of the recycled bottles for the, for example? Oh, the, um, the seat. The seat. The seat bottles. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, and when, when we use fibers to make some of these seats, we, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one sort of fiber, so there's no wastage at the end. Um, we have, uh, seats, um different seats because there are different seats we use for different um, models 
um, have like a single mold rather than different products within that mold so that you're not having to break apart different things at the end. Right. Um, it's just one, one singular product. So there's, and there's, there's just so many things that we're doing really, um, yeah. you know, so we have the, the precept Polestar precept, which will be our Polestar five. And we also have the, um, the electric roadster, which will be our, uh, Polestar six. They have both been our concept cars for sustainability. And just showing, you know, everyone and showing ourselves, you know, we want to get to a, a zero emissions car or a climate neutral car. Um, this is what it looks like. Yep. You know, this is what we can build into it. And we've gone out there and, and shown people because if it's exciting, yeah. people take notice. Mm. Yeah. So it's really sort of just um, shows people what we're capable of, but it gives us a sort of a guiding light and says, you know, this is this is what it looks like. Yeah, so you can sort of plan, like if you sort of aim or produce that now you can you've got something okay well that's what i've got to do to get the cars to that point i've got to find more of these materials i've got to you know systematize it all exactly yeah um oh and i guess another thing that's different um we do quite a lot of work um in the automotive industry um and polestar does a few things differently from other car companies in australia um one of which is you sell your cars online, um, and you don't you sell them directly to the customer. So, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, why you do that and um, how that how that all works and how it stacks up? I mean, you've seen the other side of it as well, obviously with with the dealers. Yeah, um, and and just you know, I was talking before about the the drivers of sustainability. The last one is inclusion, and part of that, apart from looking after everyone in your supply chain, is treating everyone fairly and equally. And when we talk about selling online, uh, we're, when you buy online, no one knows who you are, whether you're what gender you are, whether you're in tracksuit pants or a suit, what watch you wear or anything else. So there's no bias. There's no difference in pricing um, on the, um, you know, when you, when you um, buy the car or when you're going for finance. It's, it's who you are in that um, transaction. It's not going into a location where someone makes an assumption of who you are and, oh, yes, I can get more money out of you yeah. or, or less or, um, or yeah. anything like that. So it's really about, um, you know, not being, um, not having any biases there. It's just straight. This is the price. This is how you buy it. Um, and you could do that on your own. Some people want to just go online and, and not be bothered. Um, yeah. Uh, but some people want to talk to people. They want to look at the car. They want to test drive. They want that whole experience so they can still come into our retail locations and talk to anyone, you know, and have a good chat and talk to them about the car, about any, any of the technicals or, or what it's like to drive, what it's like to, um, what does it mean to be an EV owner and understanding what that journey is. So um, people have got the choice to, to in-person or they can just um, buy online and, uh, you know, you've got your web chat, you've got emails. Um, you can also get on the phone and talk to our customer care centre. They're here in Ballarat, um, you're in Australia. Yep. Lovely people, uh, very grounded. So, um, and they've been um, they've been so helpful to so many customers. We get very good feedback on on how they help people. So, um, it's a very personalised experience. So, it's a non-negotiable pricing online. It's uh, it's very much you know you you do it when you want, how you want, um, but very personalised approach to um, you know looking after customers and and making sure that we're helping them on that journey. Terrific. Um, and do you have sort of um, goals, I'm sure you do, goals about where you want the business to be in Australia, sort of short, medium, long term? Like, do you, what's, what's the, the vision for Polestar in Australia? Uh, well, I think we're, we, well, 
think no. Uh, we're moving towards being, um, you know, a more luxurious brand in the products that we're bringing into Australia in the future. Um, you know, and we, we want to be um, the most sustainable luxury brand. I would say at the moment that we are the most sustainable luxury auto brand, probably even auto brand full stop. Um, but what we want to be is the most sustainable luxury brand. So that's a really strong uh, direction for us. And we are working with a lot of different partners, events. Uh, we are very much involved in the circularity, sustainability. Um, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you community, probably yeah. what I would say. Yeah. Uh, we have some very good partners. We're working with Sam Elson from Sea Forest. We've just brought him on board as um, our ambassador. And uh, we're working with others, partnering with others as well that are all on the same kind of journey. And that's really powerful at the moment because we need to do a lot more than what we're doing doing now. So the more people that uh, really, um, you know, push that story and really get out there to other people and um, influence others that they need to do more and more quickly, um, that's where we're going to have um, change coming. And, and we've been very involved in this National Electric Vehicle um, Strategy Consultation paper with the industry auto industry groups and really and also individually providing our feedback on what um, what's needed to accelerate the growth to uh, more sustainable mobility. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, the, the EV market in Australia is still quite new compared to other markets. And I think, I mean, Tesla's been around for quite a while now, but they haven't really had any real competitors until recently. So how will Polestar and other similar, I guess, electric vehicle brands um, compete and catch up, you know, after such a big start from Tesla? Well, I think um, they have helped lead the way. Um, they've done a good job because it's about bringing more EVs to Australia, mm -hmm. um, not even just individual brands. I mean, we need to get more sustainable vehicles on, on our roads. Um, transport is about 18% of emissions. Um, passenger vehicles are probably about half of that, so a lot needs to be done. Uh, we welcome the other competition coming in. And I think when you um, you have more coming in, there are a few brands that are you know already starting to deliver now higher volumes, um, and consumers are moving to those brands because they want um, choice. They're, not everyone wants the same thing, so people will want different values, different performance, different interiors, different look. Um, so, and for Polestar, um, you know, we've got more demand than what we can get supply at the moment. And it's, it's not because we're short of supply, it's just it demands more than what, you know, anyone's expected, um, over time. So, um, and that's really healthy. So I think, um, yes, there's a lot more competition coming in, but there's also, um, a lot more people are feeling more comfortable moving to EVs. Mm. Um, and there is a lot being done. There's a lot of growth in like charging stations being put online that's expanding quite rapidly there's um you know federal state local governments um businesses shopping centers hotels everyone is putting charges um, in place you've got the road um the motoring associations nrma rac um they're all um, putting in uh, charging stations in, in partnership with some of these other companies so um yeah so it's exciting it could be exciting to see what happens over the next uh, next couple of years and I think it's a matter of the, the government having the right, well thought out policies to really promote um, sustainable mobility. And uh, and if they do all of those right things, we should see more supply coming in as well. Mm. And um, I think people probably tend to, I guess, compare Polestar to Tesla. But I think you made recent comments about Polestar being more like Porsche rather than Tesla. Could you explain what you mean by that a little bit? 
Well, I think the the Polestar 2 has come in and, and been quite a competitor with, with the Tesla 3 model. Uh, but with our newer models that will be coming out, the Polestar 3 and Polestar 4 onwards, they're, they're going to be at a, at a next level of luxury. So we really are going to be at a very different level. I think consumers um, that are coming into our, our brand will be looking for something a bit more than what they'll get with some of the other brands. Um, so that's where we, we really are moving to a different space. Mm. And I mean, in terms of the electric vehicle industry itself, uh, where are we at with electric vehicles in Australia? What do you think can be done to increase that uptake further? Because obviously the focus is on uptake generally. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, Australia, we're only probably nearly 3% um, wow, versus um, new car sales, all new car sales. UK, the end of last year was around 14%, Norway, north of 80%. Uh, Norway has been working probably since the 90s with different uh, policies. But uh, for us, we are only now um, providing input into the policies that are needed in Australia. It started off with um, state governments. Um, putting different incentives, um, be it rebates, stamp duty, um, transit land use, different things. But it's very different in every state, very different to administer in every state. So it's very difficult, confusing for consumers and very difficult for, for companies to administer. So this national electric vehicle strategy, if everything is, um, you know, the right policies are adopted from that, it would be very good to see on the demand side, uh, better incentives, um, more appropriate sort of taxation, um, there are some very good benefits out there at the moment with the FVT. Started or was retroactive for first of July this year on novated um, leases, and um, that's going to have a, a, a real impact. Um, you also got import tax that's been taken away from you know companies that don't already have a um, free trade agreement in in place. So that's that's benefits that are that are out there now, and there are these other statewide benefits there. Uh, but nationally, if we can have benefits that are sort of um, nationally consistent um, at levels that levels that really um, take into account that the costs have increased um, over time, so those benefits, the thresholds need to um, increase as well. Um, road user benefits, you know, transit lane use, parking, tolls, any kind of incentives that really help people to say, all right, well, you know, there's, it's it's more beneficial for me financially or road user benefit to, to get into an EV. On the infrastructure side, you need the the charging stations to be to be rolled out, which is all happening now. But we need that to happen at a, a faster rate. And it's not just a matter of rolling out charges. Um, you need to have the energy infrastructure that can go to like rural, for example. How do you get the energy out to these rural charging stations? And the cost of that, the business case, versus doing it in metro areas. Um, so. Um, so you need to have all the metro that's going to help look after all the apartment, build people who live in apartments and what have you and the day-to-day -day running around. Um, people who are in their homes can use the charging at home. But So there is a lot to be rolled out from the charging infrastructure and, and good maintenance of the charges. Um, the energy infrastructure to get to that and renewable energy where, where possible, that's going to be happening. Um, so you've got the demand side, you've got the infrastructure side, um, but then you've got the supply side. You really need fuel efficiency standards to be put in place. Because at the moment, UK, I think it's only ourselves and Russia that don't have these um, uh, standards in place. So uh, if you're sending a manufacturer and you're sending a batch of cars to the UK, if they go over that, the batch of cars go over the um, CO2 thresholds, then you're penalised and can be like $15,000 per car. So it's quite a lot. Um, Australia doesn't have those. So 
you're going to need your dirtiest cars. Yeah. yeah, you're going to get the, the worst cars and the dirtiest fuel in Australia um, because that's we don't have any penalties for um, otherwise, mm. uh, which is a really bad position to be, especially for Australia. We're supposed to be the, the land of plenty, the environmental and mm -hmm. um, the great outdoors, and uh, <laughs> we've got the worst uh, environmental policies when it comes to uh, motor vehicles. So, um, But this National Electric Vehicle Strategy, um, the input has been given back from the consultation paper uh, we're now waiting on, um, you know, those policies to come out. Mm. And uh, there are a lot of different inputs. Um, so the government, um, you know, if they, if they come out with well-thought-out policies, that's definitely going to drive EV sales and supplies. But it just it just depends on on how that, how that comes out and how soon it happens as well. The sooner it happens, the sooner you're going to get more um, people um, having the confidence to move into EVs and manufacturers having the confidence to send EVs to Australia. Yeah, it looks like there's still a lot of work to do in space. There is indeed. Mm. So what do you see as the, the future of the automotive industry? Well, I think those who are, are lucky can move to EVs at a faster rate. We're very fortunate that we, we've moved there straight away. That's our, our number one. Mm -hmm. done. We don't, we don't do um, sell anything other than EVs. Uh, but others are, others are coming on the journey. We hope we're influencing them to come on, on board faster. Uh, I think there have been some in the industry who have not made the right decisions in the past that are now having to rethink their strategy on, on what they're doing. So we're seeing some of that happening, which is is good. They are, you know, changing what their plans. Uh, but it's a it's a slow moving ship. That you know, um, auto manufacturing is not something you can just switch over overnight. So it's a matter of you know having very clear targets. And if you have targets and say this is when we're, you know, going to full EVs by this time. Um, then people will make that change. But if you, if you don't have any targets in place, like UK do, Norway do, others do, mm. um, then that, that change is not is going to happen at a very slow rate. So I think you um, you need to have, you know, a commitment to it for, um, for the manufacturers to be able to plan to that. Otherwise, they will just keep making these fossil fuel cars. And doing all the ease, going down the easier path. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, I guess it, the the podcast is called Legally Consumed, so we do need to ask you a question about legal things. Um, <laughs> so um, you talked about before about, you know, nationally consistent um, benefits for the use of EVs, I guess. Um, what have been some of the biggest regulatory and legal challenges since you've launched in Australia? I think the disparity between the different states in how you set up licensing. So becoming a dealer in itself was very difficult because there's different rules in different states. There's TAFE courses you have to do in some and, and yard managers courses in others, even though you're you're not out there selling cars, you're in a corporate office and you have a full team who who, who, who do a lot of that, that kind of um, work. Um, so- And there's no yard. Yeah, and there, there is no yard. So, um, so the, you know, um, some of the legislation, some of the practices are decades old yeah. and really need to catch up and be nationally consistent to make it easier. Some are so easy and others are, are not. Um, so setting up, you know, um, dealer licenses in each state, registrations in each state as well, to be able to register cars, that can be very difficult as well. Some states easier yeah. than others, but um, so these things you think are going to be very easy, can be very drawn out. Um, yeah, so just a, a, a national approach to everything would be um, much easier. Uh, just for businesses to to navigate and to be able to be more nimble and to set up faster and, and more easily, make it it'll make it um, 
easier for for the lawyers as well. Although thinking about what happened during COVID and the way each state and territory just did their entirely their own thing, it doesn't give you a lot of hope that we'll get there. But you know, you never know. It's nice to think of. Um, I guess um, just just to finish off, if you could change one law, if you were the Prime Minister of Australia for the day, um, Prime Minister Johnson, and you could. What, what would be the first thing you'd change? Well, I'd like to go back in time and probably 20 years ago, um, put this National Electric Vehicle Strategy in place 20 years ago, so it wouldn't yeah. be where we are now. That is something I w- would like to do. If there was a portal, I could like yeah. go back in time. But um, I think uh, nationalising a lot of what we're doing in that space mm. and having a national approach to it, which it seems like we are now, I think that's the most important thing and making sure that we, you know, do consider the environment as a first priority. Yes, economics are very important, but there's no use having economics if there's no environment. You know, we've got weather disasters having, mm. happening everywhere around us already. Yeah. Um, and that's now. Yeah. Um, what's it going to be like in five years' time and 10 years' time? Yeah. So let, let's take it seriously mm. and make those changes and uh, be tough about it and make them ambitious. We don't know how to make a zero, you know, climate neutral zero emission or climate neutral car, but we, we put in stone and we said, we're going to do it. Yeah. And we're, we're on the path. We've got partners in place. We actually are moving towards that. But if we hadn't put that goal in place, we wouldn't be where we are now. Yeah. So you have to put those hard targets in place and you have to pull everyone together and say, right, understand everything, how it all works. Let's, um, let's do this and let's be ambitious about it and, and not do it at a comfortable pace. Let's do it at a pace that everyone needs to work towards. All sounds very sensible to me. And um, on that note, thank you, Samantha. And we're looking forward to watching Polestar's journey in Australia. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Legally Consume, a consumer products podcast by the Consumer Products Law Firm. This was presented by Raph Goldenberg, Kay Ho and Will McMinn from CIE Legal. Our theme song is by our very own CIE Legal house band, which is comprised of Will McMinn, Andrew Ma and Andrew Thompson. This podcast production is in partnership with Social Stuff. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. For more updates and behind-the-scenes footage, head to our Instagram at CIE Legal, all one word. You can also check out our website to listen to a range of episodes and find additional free information at www.cielegal.com.au. To get in contact with CIE Legal about consumer products legal services, reach out to us on info at cielegal.com.au. Thanks again for listening to Legally Consumed and see you all in the next episode.